welcome to another exciting edition of Talks Now. I'm your host, Matt Zuckerman. On this episode, we are going to be talking to two authors of a really groundbreaking paper. And really what the paper does is it lays the groundwork for a new way of monitoring and treating and understanding drug use and drug abuse. To take a step back, I would let you know that right now, as I record this, I am wearing one of those Fitbit devices. It tells me how many steps I take in a day and calories, and especially working in an ED, it tells me about my sleep pattern. And I hopefully am using that information to gain insight about how my days are going and a reminder about different things I could do, maybe taking a walk after lunch. Well, Ed Boyer and Stephanie Carrero from the University of Massachusetts are working on a new way to portably monitor drug users and to possibly gain insight into their use and possibly allow for a non-invasive, portable way of monitoring drug use that can be worn in the field, so to speak. Previously, most of this work has either been done retrospectively with interviews or possibly in a lab somewhere with a lot of sensors. But Ed and Stephanie are really taking it to the street, so to speak, with these new biosensing monitors. The article, if you're interested in it, is uh, Real-Time Mobile Detection of Drug Use with Wearable Biosensors, a pilot study, uh, available in the Journal of Medical Toxicology, and we'll put a, a link to that on our show website. As always, you can check out more information at our website, talksnow.org, or contact us, talksnow at talksnow.org, or tweet at us at talksnow. Without any further delay, here's the interview with Ed and Stephanie. Hello, welcome again to another segment of Talks Talk. I'm Matt Zuckerman, your non-laughing host. Here today, I am with... I'm Ed Boyer from Division of Toxicology at UMass. Stephanie Carrero, also from UMass Toxicology. And we are talking about an exciting paper that I just read from the Journal of Medical Toxicology called Real-Time Mobile Detection of Drug Use with Wearable Biosensors, a pilot study. And I have with me here the lead author and, and, and the last author, the first and last author, you're the bookend authors. This is interesting because when I read JMT, there's a lot of great articles in it, but they're very often case series of exotic exposures or they're kind of very dry talk stuff. And then I read this article and I saw wearable biosensors, and I read the article, and it seems like you tagged... Well, no, you, you used it in the emergency department. You put it on uh, some people that were getting intravenous opioids. But you also tagged a drug user and tried to monitor their use. And so when I read this article, first of all, it sounded really fun to do, but also it sounded like there were so many different applications for this type of technology. So I was just wondering, why did you decide to do this study? The publication in JMT... The pilot study is sort of a companion piece to another larger publication that's coming out, both of which have been funded through National Institutes on Drug Abuse. So it relies on human physiology, namely sympathetic nervous system activation. When you have increased sympathomimetic activity, people develop tiny changes in their skin conductance, which you can measure fairly easily. You can also measure how they're moving, how rapidly and in what dimension they're moving by means of an accelerometer. And finally, you can measure skin temperature just off surface temperature measurements. So all those biosensors were encapsulated into one wearable device, which goes on the wrist. It looks sort of like a wristband or depending 
you know, your background and interests, it could also be a monitoring device for the legal system. But one of the legal low jacks to, to for home arrest and things like that. It could look like that to some people, and I think some people actually commented on that. Just uh, one participant in in the course of the study, but it relies on the notion that if you're undergoing stress, you have an increase in sympathetic outflow, which leads to a increase in microscopic amounts of perspiration on your skin, which can be measured as an increase in skin conductance. And then by the motion artifacts, or sorry, by the motion detection systems and from skin temperature, you can begin to winnow out precisely what's going on physiologically. So this study was looking at opioids. We've got a larger study looking at release of the same biosensor among people who are under drug treatment for cocaine to figure out if people are have used cocaine or not in out in the real world and use that to determine the efficacy of behavioral interventions for cocaine dependency. So the fancy term, I guess, is electrodermal activity or skin conductance. And essentially, it's the same technology that we kind of think of when we think of the lie detector, right? There's there's little sensors on somebody's skin that can detect changes in electrical conductance. Those changes are often based on moisture on the skin and other skin variables. The idea being that your autonomic nervous system is sort of tied in directly to the skin. So you can, you can use the sensor to sort of monitor the autonomic nervous system. But rather than have, you know, we sort of think of these large contraptions with wires and stickers everywhere to monitor that, you guys are using a device that's really portable. And I think not to endorse or not endorse any particular device, but this particular study I think was done with something called a Q sensor, which is sort of out of, out of a group in Waltham, Massachusetts, and then the MIT group is also doing some work with this. Yeah, Ross Picard from MIT is one of the co-investigators on the study, and it really could not have been done without her, uh, without her help. Cool. So realistically, you couldn't do the study before because you wouldn't be able to really put wires and sensors everywhere on a drug user and sort of have them move around. And even in an emergency department, to stop everything before you give somebody a dose of medication to apply everything would be hard. So this is, um, this is a portable device that has been used, I understand it, in other arenas and other settings. So the device has actually been demonstrated to detect uh, epileptiform activity, various states of uh, stress uh, and agitation, and also emotional responses in patients with PTSD and different anxiety disorders. So there's a variety of applications that are described for it, but it's never been utilized in uh, drug detection before. Okay, yeah. So sort of a meeting of the minds and, and using this device in a, in, a different, in a different setting. So you got together and you said it would be really great if we could monitor these three characteristics, which, Ed, you mentioned, the electrodermal conductance, the skin temperature, and then there's also a little accelerometer so you can see how much movement or um, motor activity there is also. So you, you yeah, I mean, mathematically, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I think the, the concept of skin conductance is electrodermal activity is easier for people to get their heads around because, you know, like sweating is something that, the, that we all do to a greater or lesser extent, but we don't necessarily all do machine learning protocols in our own brain. At least we don't recognize that we're doing that. And for the people that I've worked with, yeah, you can get information off the electrodermal activity, but ultimately the analysis hinges heavily, and it doesn't matter if it's opioids versus cocaine, the analysis hinges heavily on the recognition of new motion patterns that are picked up by the accelerometer. Okay, great. And so how did you do the study? What did you do, essentially, for people that haven't read it? So for the opioid arm, we enrolled patients in the emergency department 
who are already prescribed an IV opioid medicine by a provider for most of the cases for something like abdominal pain, acute pain in the emergency department. Um, and so we're going to get some morphine, some hydromorphone. Exactly. So that was already prescribed. And after the patient was consented for the study, we applied the biosensor to the inner aspect of their wrist, and we recorded when it was applied, when the opiate was administered, and then we recorded for approximately 30 minutes after the administration. We asked the patient a couple of simple questions about their perception of the device and whether it was acceptable to them or there were, there were any particular deterrents at all. And then we removed the device and looked at the data subsequently. Just to jump back a step. So do you have to prepare the skin at all? Or how, I mean, how, what were the mechanics of the device? The skin just had to be clean and dry, and it was applied to the inner aspect of the forearm. It's very simple. It's attached to a Velcro band. So the electrodes themselves just get cleaned off with alcohol after each use, but otherwise there's no preparation at all. Okay. And how did people respond to enrollment? So people were generally very interested in the device. There was one participant, as we mentioned, who commented that it sort of looked like an electronic monitoring device placed by the police, but it didn't deter him enough to prevent his participation. And otherwise, people said either they didn't notice it or they thought it was really interesting. Okay, yeah. It almost sounds like one of those new, like, uh, you know, energy bands that you wear to see how many steps you take in a day and how your sleep is. So you walked up to somebody in the emergency department who's getting medicated, and, and, you, and you enrolled them, and then you monitored them. And what does the output from the device end up looking like? I mean, it's not like a smiley face. What, what does it look like? No, and people often would ask as soon as we took it off them, did I pass? Did I win? Did I break the record or something to that effect. But really, the data is a little bit less exciting than a pretty picture or a smiley face, at least when you first look at it. So there's a software program that goes with a Q-sensor. And in the article, actually, there are a couple of figures that show some sample tracings from the device. And it's a three-pane display that basically just shows you the electrodermal activity, temperature, and locomotion over a given set of time. And there will often be a time marker where the opioid was administered. Almost like if you're watching like telemetry or something, but instead of getting electrical activity, you're getting three, you're getting electrodermal activity, you're Mm -hmm. getting movement and you're getting temperature. Exactly. And the locomotion is a little more complicated to look at because it's actually three different streams. So three different axes of motion, which makes sense. And they're superimposed on one another in the uh, display pane. So it can be a little bit more challenging to interpret that data. But the electrodermal activity is really where we see the most dramatic, um, at least visual display of data. All right. So you get the data. And you enrolled how many patients? I think it was... In the pilot study, there were four patients in the opioid arm, and there was one field participant in the cocaine arm. Yeah, and the field participant sounds sounds very interesting, but we should talk about that last, I guess. Sure. So uh, you get the data. I wouldn't know how to interpret this data, because I've never worked with this type of data before. So what did you do when you got the data? Well, fortunately, that's why it's a collaborative transdisciplinary study. You, know, you, can't, you can't just do standard, average, run-of-the-mill statistical analyses on these things because historically there would be a poor graduate student with a pair of calipers and an EKG readout who would measure the distance between intervals, which is pretty inaccurate because it's not pixelated data, which you know, like ours can be. I think our data is packetized at 18 data transmissions or 18 data recordings per second. So over the course of even a few seconds of measurements, we have literally thousands of data points, not only because we have three sensors, but there are also multiple channels through which the data can be taken in by the sensors themselves. So the mass of data is huge. So you really have to go with somebody who's got a mathematical background in statistical analysis as opposed to a 
statistical background in statistical analysis. So, you know, like we went to our, you know, like our experts in pattern recognition and said, let's find patterns and let's see what we can say about these things. And for this pilot study, we did more of a qualitative analysis just to look at some of the output we're getting with the larger data sets that we obtained subsequently in the remainder of this study. And in the larger outpatient cocaine study, we're doing more intensive uh, quantitative pattern recognition work and working to design a computer algorithm to detect these changes. Okay. Yeah. And it seemed like you were trying to get a variety of patient backgrounds. So because you're using this in a novel field, you're trying to almost get fingerprints for how different patient populations might respond to certain substances. And so you had a patient that was sort of opioid naive and was getting opioids. And then you had a patient that had had been on oral opioids recently. And then it sounded like you had another patient that was really what we would mostly consider opioid dependent. Were you purposely trying to get a varied background of opioid exposure states? That's actually how the first four patients we enrolled ended up coming in. It was a little bit random, but it was very, very interesting. Kind of a typical shift. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. And what did you find? So the first four patients we enrolled had very different profiles, and as you mentioned, that correlated with their different opiate use histories. So patient one was an elderly gentleman who was more or less opiate naive, and he received, I believe it was four milligrams of morphine IV. He immediately felt pain relief, had a little bit of euphoria. He self-reported a very dramatic effect from the morphine. And interestingly, his electrodermal activity surge immediately following the morphine was massive, probably one of the largest we've ever seen. So correlating with his self-reported a very dramatic opioid effect, he had a very dramatic physiologic effect as well. Okay, and so this is the typical the typical person we like to think of when we're administering opioids for acute pain is they have pain, we give them an opiate, they say, wow, I've never felt anything. That was kind of funny. I feel kind of kind of fuzzy. And, and then the pain goes away and you saw a big response. Interestingly, that's been very a very difficult patient type to come by in our study. One of the challenges was finding opioid-naive patients in the emergency department. This was done in Worcester? In Worcester. Yes. The, fair, the, fair, the fair city of Worcester. The fair city of Worcester. <laughs> no, that's hard, right. So you were, yeah, so you found, you found as almost pretty much a citizen, as somebody might say. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. And uh, and so you found that you had other patients. The subsequent two patients were both patients who had been exposed to oral opiates. One had had recent short-term opiates. I believe he was a post-operative patient, had a short prescription. And the third patient initially denied use, but then admitted a chronic opioid use. She also requested hydromorphone by its brand name. She was felt by clinicians to exhibit some concerning narcotic-seeking behavior, etc. And that was noted uh, as we went through. And interestingly, participant two, who was a gentleman who had a recent short-term opiate prescription, had a similar increase in electrodermal activity that we saw in, in participant one, although it was much less dramatic, which we think correlates with his recent experience with opioid use. And participant three, who was a chronic user, had some concerning narcotic-seeking behavior and also interestingly reported no analgesic effect with a milligram of hydromorphone had no electrodermal response after hydromorphone was administered. So the interesting thing about this is that you can broadly correlate physiologic responses with degree of opioid tolerance. And I guess, so right, so this is this is trying to get objective data to confirm what, I mean, what most people on the ground sense, that when they get somebody who comes in and they're 12 out of 10 pain and they get one of hydromorphone and they say, well, it didn't touch my pain, I need more. 
and then you try to say, well, maybe we shouldn't give you any more of that medicine if it didn't do anything for you. Drug-seeking is, is the term that some people might use, but really opioid-tolerant and opioid-dependent. Tantalizing suggestion is that the more tolerant you are, the less reactive you are physiologically. And so you can use the working hypothesis would be that you can detect or one can detect opioid tolerance with the objective measures that we have here. Doctors' presumptions may fail. They may feel somebody is opioid tolerant when they're really not and vice versa. Prescription monitoring data programs may not accurately reflect where somebody's getting opioids, but this is a way, potentially, that a clinician at the bedside can tell whether or not somebody's tolerant or not, and then rethink about the analgesic opportunities that are available to them in a very, very broad sense. So I view it as not only a way of detecting who might be trying to game the system, but also a way of improving, improving medical care as well. So we, we talked about how it would be difficult to do this study with the old technology because it's bulky and you have to apply sensors everywhere. But the, the cool thing about this, about this technology is it's portable. I mean, you just put it on the wrist. And so you sort of did, a, you, I think, a, a field study, I mean, kind of a tag and release, in a way, study, which I thought was one of the most fascinating aspects of it. Do you, do you want to talk about that? We confirmed that there was blanket approval for individuals who were individuals to wear sensors as they went through their daily lives. So then we just found individuals who might be using drugs as part of their daily lives. We confirmed with the IRB that it was correct to approach things in that way as long as they were people who were not seeking drug treatment. So we just approached a an outreach program and just said, would you be interested in pointing, you know, like anyone who would be interested in wearing a biosensor towards us? And so we found an individual, gave him the sensor, made arrangements to meet him you know, like later in the day just so we could collect data as he went through his day. And sure enough, off he went. He came back, we collected the data, and you know, like some time period after he left, there was a massive spike in electrodermal activity that correlated with changes in motion and, interestingly, a 1 to 2 degree decrease in temperature. And that's particular skin temperature. That's a particularly interesting finding because typically exercise and stress reactions increase skin temperature, but his was decreased. So that's consistent with the vasoconstrictive action of cocaine. So essentially, though, the way that the sensor works, though, it's not, it doesn't transmit. So in order to get data, you need to pick the sensor back up. This one doesn't transmit. The, the, version, the version we had doesn't have Bluetooth capabilities, but the other ones, there are ones that you can purchase which do. Okay. And the subject that enrolled was a known regular cocaine user. Yeah. I mean, it was a drug outreach program. But, you know, the critical feature was, are you interested in going to, are you interested in entering drug treatment programs? The answer was, no, I've been through that already. You know, the whole point was to not, was to take somebody who would do something as part of their daily life, not try to steer them away from someplace that would take them to better and more healthful living. Right, and that's the tricky thing. I mean, with any kind of human subjects research, you are always very tightly monitored to make sure that you're not causing adverse outcomes in the subject that you're studying, even if there's greater benefits for the rest of the population. And so certainly you're not in this particular case. And that's one of the hard things about studying sort of cocaine use, right? Because giving somebody cocaine is very obviously possibly detrimental. An observational study, and there are plenty of observational studies with drug users, very often they tend to be interview-based or narrative-based to get information. This was essentially an observational study of someone 
who is high risk for using cocaine. The, the cocaine wasn't provided, but you can get important information that can help use this device really in, in drug treatment. That's correct. So when you got the sensor back, did you ask the subject, did you ask them to have a diary of activities or did you ask them what activities they did since they had left the center? We didn't have a diary of activities. I just asked what he had done. And the scripture was, you know, like I walked around for about half an hour, talked to some friends for a few minutes. I scored some cocaine. I injected it. And then I walked around for a little bit more. I got something to eat after a bit. And then I came back here. He was going through his normal daily activities. And when I said, do you use cocaine every day? He goes, yeah, I inject cocaine a couple times a day. Okay. Right. So common things being common, you're likely to pick something up. Right. So you get the, the sensor back and you look at the data. It sounds like you think that that's possibly the fingerprint or the, the sensor toxidrome for cocaine injection. Yeah, I think so. I mean, if, like, if you look at the change in electrodermal activity compared against somebody who's got a stress reaction, I mean, it's, it's a massive change in electrodermal activity, which far outstrips what an individual with a stress reaction would, ex would exhibit. That's what I looked at, me being the neophyte. When the pattern recognition experts looked at it, they weren't impressed by the electrodermal activity at all. The first thing that came out of the mouth was, wow, look at the change in the, in the body motion. And then I thought for a bit, and I said, oh, that makes sense. You know, because I think we've, as emergency physicians, all seen people who've used cocaine acutely. And, you know, like, they're moving around, they're not sitting in bed, they're, you know, like, they have to move, they have to, you know, they have to have some degree of activity. And you can call it what you want. You can call it akathisias, you can call it, you can call it being hopped up, you can call it crack dancing, you know, crack dancing, call it whatever you want it, whatever, whatever you want to call it. But that got picked up by the sensors. And that was the first thing that the pattern recognition folks clued in on. They said it is so distinct from what other other motion measurements they've seen is that they really honed in on that. Yeah, so I guess, yeah, so you're looking at there's stress response, I'm going to give a speech, there's stress response, I'm being chased by a bear, and then there's sort of stress response and motor response, I just shot crack, or cocaine, I shot cocaine. This was an exploratory study. There's an N of five here. This is, it's really descriptive. It's, it's a novel use of the technology. What's next? We're finishing up a protocol looking at approximately 15 outpatient cocaine users who have been wearing these bracelets for 30 days at a time. They're all enrolled in drug rehab. We'll have them come back every few days and take a urine drug test and also ask them if they've relapsed. And so we're comparing the biosensor data to their self-report and their urine drug screens and coming up with some very interesting findings that the bracelets can occasionally pick up episodes of cocaine use that one or the other will miss. And then typically later when confronted, the patients will admit to cocaine use. And we've also completed an enrollment in the opioid study. So we have approximately 30 uh, participants who went through the entire opioid ED protocol. And we're uh, looking more closely using pattern recognition software to analyze that data to find a little bit more of a distinct pattern for opiate injection as well. Great. And you said it seemed like the people were receptive to wearing the devices. Actually, some of the participants in the cocaine study were very excited about it to the point where 
They would look forward to the days that they came in. They would ask to see their tracings. They would offer to keep diaries. They would often ask things like, did I pass or did I win or did I break a record? Some participants said that it had no effect on their daily life. And if they were going to use, they were going to use. And other participants said they would look at the device and think about going to jail. And so it would be a deterrent to use it, which was also a little bit interesting. So just the idea that someone was watching and could more reliably detect their use may have prevented them from using. And so they felt like it was helpful. There are a couple of other things that came out of the cocaine study that I think are worth mentioning as well. The interesting thing about cocaine is that there are no pharmacologic treatments for it. There are only behavioral treatments for it. And figuring out what is effective in terms of keeping somebody from relapse into cocaine use can be somewhat difficult because every objective measurement scheme to determine sobriety has problems. You can do drug testing, but drug testing clearly has the shortcoming of being relatively a narrow window of detection for cocaine, you know, maybe three, five days or so, you have self-report, and people in drug treatment obviously have a reason to lie about whether or not they use drugs. So figuring out objectively who's used cocaine and who hasn't is actually a very important topic. So individuals go to drug treatment, usually are going to cocaine treatment, not because they want to, but because they're being compelled to. Their family has left them. They've been tossed out of the house. They they don't have any more income because they've lost their jobs. They burn through their family savings. I mean, essentially because their life is crashing down around them. It's not because the cocaine is bad. It's because everything else is become so unworkable that they, they can't live with the cocaine anymore. But the cocaine's still great. So there's this pull towards using and at the same time, no good objective way of determining who's used and who has not. So in giving people biosensors to wear, I think one of the first things that popped out in the first three patients that we studied, assessing the motivations to enroll in the study and tuning your description on how to use the sensor, I think are going to be important. We had the individual who was excited about going off cocaine. He wanted to wear the sensor. He even offered to keep a diary, and we had to change all of our IRB protocols to allow for diary collection at that point. Super motivated, super excited, and we gave him the sensor, and off he went. There was the other person who was ready to get off, got the sensor, and off they went. The third person was someone who was like, yeah, I'm in drug treatment because I'm being forced to go there. Yeah, I'll wear the sensor, fine, whatever. Got the sensor, and off they went. The first person had bad things happen in his life. He relapsed to cocaine use, but took off the sensor before doing anything. So because he was highly motivated, he didn't want people to realize that he was bearing the stigma of using, so he just took the sensor off and didn't use it. The person who wanted to get off cocaine was abstinent, and we could demonstrate that by timeline followback, supported self-report, as well as drug testing, and no characteristic physiologic tracings consistent with cocaine use. So, you know, that was good. And then the other person who was just in drug treatment because he had to be in drug treatment but didn't care about stopping cocaine use, of course, continued to wear the sensor and, of course, picked up his cocaine use. So assessing the motivations is going to be really important, and I think that that's something that's not recognized yet in the whole M-Health world, is that you need to know why somebody wants to adopt a particular course using mobile technologies before you can actually allow them to embrace the mobile technologies. And I think that's going to be, in a broader sense, one of the most important lessons that came out of this study. Yeah, and you mentioned sort of the trend towards M-Health, and it seems like 
right now there is a big movement towards that. I mean, I kind of commented on the um, the energy bands that kind of honestly very yuppie people wear to like track their movements and their sleep and their exercise. And these are very self-motivated people. But also even just the idea of having a sensor that if it alerts that you've used maybe might provide brief motivational interventions or maybe might provide a personal diary for yourself. It seems like there's a lot of excitement about where this technology could go, both from the medical bedside setting, also in the addiction medicine setting, but also just in the idea that we love to know more about ourselves and to monitor ourselves. Great. And I think that with the newer technology that Ed was mentioning that has Bluetooth capability, once we develop an appropriate algorithm and convince patients to use the technology, you can then use potential events to trigger other interventions, whether it logs the event in a program for later review with their clinician or whether it calls their sponsor or whether it simply just calls them and says, hey, how are you doing? Do you need any help? Ultimately, we can provide real potential real-time interventions and extend our reach for treatment beyond the doors of the clinic. And the fact that we now are beginning to amass data so that we can recognize when drug use occurs means that we can do just-in-time interventions for those folks. That's great. Well, it was a great study to read. I really enjoyed it. It was definitely different than a lot of the other articles that I read in the journal, and it sounds like very exciting stuff going on. Do you guys have anything else that you wanted to add that you feel like we haven't uh, touched on? You know, the whole the whole wearable biosensor movement, I think, is prepared to really take off. One of the big things, you know, this, this is actually my second or third mobile biosensor study. The, the thing that popped out of the first one is that the noise cancellation routines for the wearable sensors, you know, the, the, the routines embedded in the wearable sensors, weren't adequate enough to really discriminate between noise and physiology to the extent that we'd really like them to. If you go back to the 1990s and you remember the first voice dial telephones, you know, mobile phones that people had, you know, you had to be in a quiet room away from everybody else. You had to speak very slowly and very clearly for the thing to understand you. And nowadays, you know, they're so good that, you know, I can speak in a thick Southern accent and still pick up what I'm trying to say. So the mathematics has improved so much in terms of voice dialing, that we need that same advancement to happen for a number of different mobile biosensors so that we can get data rather than data plus noise and not really know which is which. Absolutely. It's an exciting time to to, to do research in this area, and uh, I look forward to reading some more of your publications in the future. And we look forward to producing them. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Matt. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. I have to say it was pretty exciting to find out what they're doing over there at UMass with these wearable biosensors, and I get a sense that this is just the tip of the iceberg, and uh, I think it's really going to revolutionize how we do research on illicit drug use and even provide some new novel treatment modalities for people who are trying to kick the habit, so to speak. I'm Matt Zuckerman. I'm faculty at University of Colorado and Schutz Medical Campus, signing off. <laughs>